But that's the foundation from where Jesus and Paul um, experienced the, the life they did. And everybody wants that life, but nobody looks at, well, how did that life come forth in them? And the thing Jesus knew is that even though he had a perishable body, a mortal body that had weakness in its body, an inability in its body, he said that the life I have inside of this body is actually the treasure that's in heaven. The substance of my life, the power behind my life, isn't this world or the weakness that is in my mortal body. The power or the strength or the substance of my life is God in His life. Right? And, he's, and that started animating His mortal body with an immortal life. Now that's a powerful thing when your mortal body becomes animated with an immortal, incorruptible life. Because then your mortal body, the strength behind it, is immortality. The, your corruptible body, the strength behind it, is an incorruptible life. And then what happens is, is you're, you're free from fear. And you're filled with boldness. And you begin looking at things from, the, from the, the eyes of an incorruptible life instead of the weakness you see in your physical body and in the world around you. And that's what changes your whole life. That's why Jesus was filled with peace and love and joy. That's why Jesus walked around doing the things that he did. He saw into heaven. He saw his Father. And he said, in my Father is a life that overcomes the death in the world. It even overcomes death in the flesh. And he started declaring that life in the earth, that's why he would tell people, your sin has been sent away from you. Because he saw in him was a life that sends death away from people. right? And he walked around knowing that in him was a light and a life that dispels darkness and death. So when he looked at death, he sneered at it. Because he said, what can death do to the life I have in this earthen vessel? Even should death come upon this earthen vessel, the life I have in myself will even build me another vessel out of incorruption. Hallelujah. Right? And so, what is there to be afraid of at that point? And that's what, that's what all the apostles were filled with. They, they sneered at death because they saw their life was from above. And that's actually what it means to be born again. Right? I know that the, the Christian world has turned born again into a theology where you say a magic prayer and now you're born again. And don't even talk about what it means. To really be born again, if you look at the context of what Jesus was teaching in the Gospel of John, to be born again is for you to commit your life into the hands of the Father. And what that means is, is now the life you have in this mortal body has come from above and not the dust. Your life is no longer earthy, it's heavenly. Meaning it's not subject to corruption, it's incorruptible. And so when Jesus says you must be born again, what he's saying is you'll never see the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is contained in immortality in your physical body. You'll never see the kingdom of God unless your life is born from above. That's what he's talking about. And even in the Greek, the word again means above, from above. Jesus is saying, I've come to reveal the Father to you and that the Father has drawn near to you to bring forth His incorruptible life inside of you. He's come to surname you. He sees that you're His seed, that you've come forth from His loins, and He's come to find you and deliver you from the corruption in the earth. So you're saying that in that context, again, doesn't mean a second time? If you want to say that you're born a second time, I wouldn't disagree with that, but the context is for your life to come from above. Well, I know that's the context, but I'm asking about that specific word, because doesn't he say to Nicodemus, you know, what was born of flesh is flesh, and what was born of spirit is yeah. spirit? That's right. Yeah. 
So you're born physically a first time, yeah. you're born yeah. spiritually a second time. Yeah. Yeah. So in that context, doesn't again mean a second I don't time. like those, those languages. Okay. Because spiritual turns into spirit, soul, and body. Right? And it turns into a compartmentalized of human beings. I wouldn't find fault outside of all the error that's been taught in describing it that way. But it's much easier understood where your life is born from above. Right? That's yeah. the easiest way to explain it, which is what that word again means. From above. Right? Meaning, from the Father. The life you have in this mortal body hasn't come from the world or the earth. It's come from the Father. Right? Now, if you want to say that that's you being born a second time because your first birth was from your mother, I wouldn't find fault with that. And that was... And Nicodemus, that was his thought. What do you call back in your mother's womb? Right. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying that's missing the point. Jesus... Jesus would go on to say things like, um, my words, they are spirit and they are life, right? And so Nicodemus is thinking about a physical rebirth, yeah. and he's missing the point, right? right? He's missing the entire context, right? Well, on, the, on the other hand, though, he was recognizing the fact that, so you're saying that the life I now have is not sufficient for me to attain or to see or to perceive the spirit, spirit. and in effect, the kingdom of God. The Lord was saying, "Yes, that's correct." It, it, you know, when you look at uh, the disciples, listen. When Jesus was arrested, all the disciples fled. When they confronted Peter, he cursed and swore, "I don't even know the man." Now, something happened with Peter between that time and the time when he stood up before the Sanhedrin and proclaimed the gospel to them, to their face. Something happened with him that, that gave him the boldness, the ability to do it. And that was the giving of the Spirit, the life of God. And when that life comes to indwell the believer, that power endows us with the life that comes from God and and in the spirit that is in God yeah. and uh, I mean that's the way I see it that's the way I've always seen but it but that's the way we just said it was yeah, yeah. oh yeah absolutely that's, but that's it, what we it, just said it, that it, it was but it, that's right yeah. and it, it comes that, and that life comes from the father yeah, that's what we right. just said the, the yep. difference that's for Peter right from one <clears throat> statement to the next <clears throat> statement was knowing him he didn't know him Right. When you Absolutely. deny him, and then you Absolutely. came to know him, to know him. He, even said, he even said, "I don't know." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. He said right there. Yeah. He didn't know the father. That's right. Right. He didn't know the father at, at that point. But it's an amazing thing, the the fact that these guys saw all the miracles he did. They heard him say, "I'm going to be crucified in three days. I'm going to be raised," and then. The, the, the two that want to row to Emmaus comes and said, we seen him. And they said, we don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> the women come, came from the grave and told them, we seen him. They didn't believe it. The reason why the miracles didn't do anything is because that would be a life by your willpower. That's right. You saw something, and then you tried to use what you saw as the power by which you did something. The only way you could be filled with the boldness is by possessing an incorruptible life. Right and knowing your life as God would know His life. Jesus wasn't like 
using his willpower to perform miracles. When he thought of his life, he thought of the life that was in the Father, and that filled him with boldness. It's, it's, the, it's, it's that your thoughts become animated by the life you think you have, is what it is. And if you think your life is corruptible, your thoughts will be animated by that. If you think your life is subject to the world and what goes on in the world, your thoughts and your sight will be animated by that. But if you think that your life is incorruptible, that it's the life the Father has in Himself, and you think that you have a life that overcomes the death in the world, that will animate your thoughts, and that will animate your sight. And you'll walk in the world viewing things that way. So when they would see somebody that was a cripple outside the temple, their sight would say, in me is the Father, in I'm in the Father, and His life is in me, and in me is a life that straightens out dry bones, right? And then that would affect their sight. And so then they would pray for that guy knowing that the kingdom was come, or knowing that a life had come into the earth that conquers death, right? That controlled their action. They weren't thinking, well, you know, uh, we can take authority here. Let's take authority. No, no, no. They said that the Lord has a life in him that has made death bow down. The Lord has a life in him that has made corruption bow down, that has whooped decay. Hallelujah. Stand up. Right? That, that was the thought process that went it, it, uh, on inside of them. Right? And one of the things the Lord's trying to do right now in the church across the world is make straight our view of, of miracles and signs and wonders. Because for so long we looked at miracles and signs and wonders like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that there is a such thing as miracles and signs and wonders, and we see these dudes perform those things, and we see that's the fruit of God's life, and then we went about trying to produce it, right? Instead of understanding or eating from the tree that produces those kinds of things, right? Does that make sense? I was thinking on the way over here. I woke up thinking about this and called a friend in El Paso talked about 20, 20 minutes on the way over here. We look at life and we say, oh, things go, things are going well, thank God for that. And then if things aren't going well, we say, well, God made that happen. And then we say, well, all good gifts come, come from God. But what's the one gift, what's the good gift that comes from God? It's what we're talking about here. The, the, the word, the wisdom, the, the Christ, the eternal life, the incorruptible life. That's the one good gift that actually accomplishes God's dream for himself for us to live and not die. The other things are just circumstances in the world that can be influenced by humans. Yeah. And whether things go well or not is not the same as saying whether you got a good gift from God or not. That's right. There's one good gift from God. It's life that gives you the ability to overcome any circumstance. And then you don't even have to say whether it's good or bad. It just is. Yeah. A, a good thing I did with God was I was trying to suck peace and love and joy out of my circumstances. Yep. Out of what I could accomplish. Out of what could go right. And I had in my mind a whole set of what that would look like. Right? Like I had in my mind a whole set of how things ought to go and then I could suck peace and love and joy out of them. And God had to sit down and talk with me about what it is I thought I could get from all these things, even if they went straight. Well, Greg, what is it that you're trying to suck out of those things anyway, right? You're so concerned about this, 
Well, let's say it went that way. What do you think you could gain from that? And then out of my heart would come what I thought I could gain from that. And then what he did was he came and sat with me and showed me how the thing I was trying to suck out of this is only actually found in him. The converse is also uh, prevalent, and that is, uh, I sure hope this doesn't happen. Yeah. I sure hope it's not a tumor. Okay, well, you can sit with God and have the same kind of conversation. That's right. You, what, what is it you think you can lose by the presence of a tumor? That's right. And then what happens in that dynamic, your heart is engaging with the heart of God. And what he does is, is he comes and puts his life next to the tumor. And all of a sudden, do you know what the tumor looks like next to his life? It shrinks. It shrinks in your heart. It shrinks in your mind. And you begin to see the tumor as a light affliction. Right? Because you're aware or you comprehend God with you, God's life in you, God, the shepherd and bishop of your soul. Which is what Paul would come and say in Romans. I can't get off this kick right now, so I'm just going to preach a message about this soon. The, the carnal mind can't comprehend God. Right now, I used to think a bunch of things about that. But now I see it in light of the context of Romans 8. And what that means is, is the carnal mind doesn't comprehend God with them to be a father to their life. And so when they encounter the tribulation in this world, when their nakedness un is uncovered by all the lack, they don't see God with them to shepherd their lives unto a place of rest. They don't see God with them to save them or deliver them from their body of death. They see themselves as being far away from God and far away from life. And so that's why they get working to try to clothe themselves with life. right? But the mind of the Spirit, or the mind of Christ, it comprehends God with them to be a father to their life. So the moment they encounter something, to use your example of a tumor, they see the tumor there. Well, the mind of Christ doesn't comprehend the tumor and then think, what are we going to do? It comprehends the tumor, but it comprehends God with them, God's life in them to cause their life to overcome the tumor. Right? And then it shrinks the tumor. And then you have come out of you what Paul said. Whether a tumor or whether death or life or peril or sword, nothing can separate me from the love of God. What he's saying is God loves me so much. He won't allow the corruption in this earth to overcome me. Right? The, the expression uh, comes to mind. What does the, the spirit would say, uh, what does the tumor have to do with the price of tea in China? <laughs> Right? What's the tumor have to do with life? Yeah. It's neither here nor there. Yeah. And that's a great point. And I think we said this at the Bible study is that we judge life or death by this world. But life or death is not found in this world. And the scriptures make that point over and over and over again. But we in, we're born into this world and then we judge whether we have life or not by what we see in the world. Mm -hmm. But whether you have life or not as God testified in the Son, isn't in whether or not you avoid the death that's in this world. It's in whether or not you believe the testimony He's given in His Son. Life and death is found in whether or not you believe the testimony He's given in His Son. If you have believed the testimony He's given in Jesus, then you have life. I know you usually add this caveat at some point, so I will. That doesn't mean you can't have passions or preferences. Use a stupid example. If I'm gonna cook a hamburger, I want it medium rare. I don't want it burned. 
If it burned, it doesn't mean I lose my life. But I prefer to have it in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. So you may have a desire to you know, drive a certain kind of car, have a certain kind of job, live in a certain area, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just if you elevate that to, to, to the point of being the source of life or death, that's where you fall into the trap. The giver or the taker layer of death. That's exactly right. And to clarify that a little more, it's not like necessarily like elevating those things. It's it's like those things are not even entering into the equation, kind of. Those things are kind of like just a part of your working your way through this life and living this life on the earth. But when you're when you know where your life is, then it puts all the other stuff kind of like in proper perspective, you know. That's exactly it, right. It, it, which you know, kind of disesteems them to give you life. So, you know. No, that's exactly right. It's a subconscious thing in your right. heart yeah. that we're bringing out in the open to understand. Listen, I love Becky. I want things to go well with Becky and I. Like, I really do. Like, I don't like it when we fight. Like, the only thing that bothers me is when things aren't going well with Becky or with Becky and I. I do. But that's not the, the giver or taker way of my life. Life and death is not found in how it goes with Becky. You see what I'm saying? Even if the worst thing should happen and Becky despises, decides that she hates my guts and she despises the day I was born, that can't take away my life. Right? Doesn't mean I wouldn't be disappointed. Doesn't mean that I might not even cry. But what it does is, is my, my joy or my sorrow will be turned back into joy because I'll see that my life is not hid in Becky. Right? My life is not hid in how it goes with Becky. My life is hid with God and Christ. Our society has done a thing where it's convinced men and women that their life is hid in the other one. Mm -hmm. That's what it's done. And it's convinced men and women that not only is your life hid in the other one, if you don't have another one, you don't have life. Life is found in having the other one and then in them. Right? And that's why the divorce rate is so high. Yeah, and listen, you know where a good marriage is fostered? In recognizing that Marie doesn't have the power to give me life. That's right. And I can just begin to appreciate her for who she is. That's right. Not worrying about whether she leaves me or stays or how she necessarily treats me. I can have fun and enjoy life with Marie because she's not the source of my life. That's right. I, said, I mean, you can actually I said have those fun. exact words to one of my kids yesterday. Really? Because yeah. uh, we're on tape, so I'm not going to identify which one. <laughs> I said, uh, Dad, do you think that uh, marriage counseling, you know, pre pre marriage counseling, is a good idea? I said, Not if you go to somebody who's secular and doesn't know the spirit. Mm -hmm. They'll just teach you a bunch of principles, mm -hmm. and that'll yeah. set you up for failure because you don't have the power to give life, and your spouse doesn't have the power to give life. And so you're going to be disappointed and, and, and ashamed of your failures, and then you, it, that's how you're going to fail. Maurice, you want to follow that up with your... Are, were you finished? Yeah. Do you want to follow that up with your story about your friend in the book? Oh, yeah! Follow, <laughs> follow, Are you reading my mind? Follow that up, man. <laughs> oh, my God. You must be reading my mind. So my friend was getting married. No, listen. He was marrying a Christian counselor. He had just become a believer and everything. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so he thought this was the greatest thing in the world. I'm a believer. I'm marrying a Christian counselor. Life is going to be good, right? Oh, Lord. So he calls me up. He said, Maurice, I want you to fly. Now, this is 25 here. years ago. Oh, okay. And uh, he says, uh, I want you to come meet my, my fiancé 
and you know, uh, you know, just to meet her because I'm getting ready to marry. I said, okay. So I actually flew to Chicago. Man, I flew to Chicago in a fall walking in Oak Park. It was like they have these big, huge elm trees. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm getting on a sidetrack, but I got to tell you, I was walking down down. Oak Park, it was raining these leaves, colored leaves, it was beautiful. But anyway, so we in there, and we're sitting around their little coffee table talking, and I'm looking on the table, and they got, they got a book on the table, and the name of the book is... Uh, his Needs and Her Needs. His Needs and Her Needs, okay? And they start talking about, they get married, and some of their thoughts about that. And when we got to the end of our conversation, because the conversation kind of was centered around what that book says, <laughs> his needs and her needs, like how I'm going to meet his needs and how he's going to meet my needs. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to tell y'all something. The, if y'all want a good, strong marriage, the, the first thing that I would do is this. I'd take that book right there and throw it in the garbage can. <laughs> because there's no way either one are you are going to meet one another's needs. No. No. Mm. They didn't throw away the book, and they were divorced within like three years. Of course they were. Wow. And I love I love Maurice in the spirit of boldness, right? Because how many people would say what needs to be said right. in that situation, right? Yeah, exactly I know you would. Right. And I, I, I love that, that about you too, man. I love people that will say what My needs wife. to be said man. in those situations. Because listen, man, there, the, 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 there's a spirit in the world right now called political correctness. Yeah. And one of the things that it, it's not a spirit from God, it's anti-Christ actually. And it, it's bring, bringing forth this thing in people where they won't say what needs to be said. Right. And they won't say what needs to be said out of fear. Right. Of hurting people's feelings or hurting whatever. Right. You don't love someone's life by uh, helping them to continue and what's killing them. That's not love. Right. You, you don't love someone's life by agreeing with, quote unquote, their truth. There is no their, your truth or my truth or their truth. There is none of that crap. There is only the truth. And the beginning of wisdom is realizing there's only the truth. And there's only one person who knows. It's God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And so, man, thank God for you saying the things that need to be said. But one of the things I do, if, should Becky and I fight, and I feel very aggravated with her. And I'm sure she feels very aggravated with me. But she's not here, so I can't speak to her. I'll speak to myself. One of the first things, and no, I didn't read this in a book, and no one told me I should do this. But through fellowshipping with, the, with God around the word of life, I found it brought this forth in me. One of the first things I do is I go off and I talk with God about how my life is hid with him and how my life isn't found in Becky or how's it going with Becky or how Becky uh, is behaving or how I perceive her to be treating me. That's one of the first things I go off and do. And you know, all of a sudden, immediately in my heart, I no longer feel aggravated with anything Becky's done. I feel great peace and patience and compassion towards her. Should she be having a bad go of it? And it actually brings something in me, forth in me where I want to embrace her, even in the midst of feeling like uh, before that she was against me. And so that's the only way you can actually be married. And so if you're, if you're, 
If you're all the time thinking your wife is going to meet your needs or the peace that you need is found in how's, how's your wife behaving or reacting to you, or if you flip it around, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, if that's what you think, you'll never be able to give them the space or the grace to have a bad day or to be stressed out by the life in the world. And you'll never be able to see into their heart and understand how the world is warring against them and think, how can I stand next to them in this place and be a help to them? All you'll think about is what's happening to you. Look what's happening to me. Look what she's doing to me. Look how he's behaving towards me. And all your mind will be filled with all the things that are being taken from you and that you don't have because of what they're doing, right? And I promise you, the thoughts that are now coming forth in your mind about your spouse at that place are bitterness, right? And now what's happened is, is your heart has elevated them to the place of your God. And now they're the giver and takers away of your life and your good time, right? And that's why marriages come to an end, Right? And the, the thing that, will, will, that I see has completely transformed my life, not just with my wife, but in all relationships, is I, once you no longer see that the way people treat you can add or take away from you, it's this powerful supernatural thing where your eyes get popped open to be able to understand their heart. Because it's this powerful thing that when you're not thinking about your own life, and the harm that's happening to you, you're able to see another person's life. And you're able to understand the hurt that's happening to them and the dynamic that's happening to them. And you're able to then actually be of help to them in the situation. And it's not that God comes and tells you what's happening. That's, that's how we want to look at it. You could describe it that way, but I think it's a poverty way of, of describing it. It's that once you're not considering your own life, and you know your life is secure, it pops open your eyes to be able to discern other people's lives, right? And until you think your life is secure and that people can't take from it or add to it, you're all the time going to be interacting with people thinking about your own life. That's what your interaction with people will be centered around, thinking about your own life, right? Now listen, I promise you, you won't understand anyone's heart. You won't see anyone's pain. You won't understand anything that's going on about them if your mind is always filled with your own life and what you need, right? You just can't do it. Now, everything you hear them say or everything you see them do is born from the foundation of all the different ways it's hurting you and whether it's right or wrong, right? And so you're not hearing them or knowing them, but you're listening to respond. Right? And listen, man, that won't bring peace to you or the situation. And I, listen, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when someone can do you wrong and you can understand why they did that. And when I say understand where it makes sense to you how that could happen. Right? What I see now is there's nothing that people can do in the world that doesn't make sense to me anymore. Because I understand the tremendous desire to have life, and I understand the tremendous effect that the death in the world has on people when they think their life is being harmed. And I realize there isn't a lot a person won't do to try to preserve their own life if they don't know that God has already preserved it. And that's what the, the gospel does this to you. I just described how the gospel can work it out in, 
itself out in somebody. We're not going to look at how it could work it out and say, we must now do that. That's not what we're talking about. What we want to be busy with is the word of life. And what the word of life will do is persuade you your life is secure. And once it persuades you your life is secure, that sets you free to be able to see what's going on in other people, right? And it sets you free from interpreting everything everyone does from the perspective of whether it's adding good to your life or hurting your life. And you'll no longer view it that way. And then your wife might, listen, man, the world might really come against your spouse. And they might have a bad five years, a bad ten years, right? And how are you going to dwell in that? And how are you going to be a comfort or a help to them in that place? I promise you, unless you know your life isn't hidden them and whether it goes well for them, listen, man, you won't be able to. And you'll end up thinking, I've got to get away from them in order to have peace, right? And now, the moment you say something like that, they become God, right? If, if you can't have peace unless you get away from somebody, that means they're your God. I hate to say it as blatant as it is. Now, I don't fault you for feeling turmoil. I'm not saying you won't feel the turmoil, but in the place of fear and ter- feeling turmoil at what's going on in somebody else and in your interaction with them, go off and talk with God about where your life is really hit. Go off and talk with God about how the peace you desire, the comfort you desire is found in Him and not how it's going here. And what you'll find is you'll find that duress or that pressure or that stress lifted off of you. And all of a sudden, you won't be like, what the hell's wrong with them? All of a sudden, you'll be like, I know exactly what's going on with them. And you'll feel compassion, right? And you'll want to embrace them. Because I promise you, when you're intimately acquainted with what's tormenting somebody, you feel compassion. Why do you think Jesus felt compassion? Why do you think Jesus felt compassion for the people that were nailing him to a tree? Because he understood how that could be happening to them. It made sense to him. He knew it was born from death. He knew it was born from the serpent, but it made sense to him how that could happen to them. And he saw what was going on in them, and he felt compassion for them, and he laid down his life even for the people who hated him because he wanted to embrace them in their death so he could lead them out of their death into his life, right? And that's how you can be of help to people. I promise you what most people is when they feel embraced in the midst of their ugliness. God embraced us in the midst of our ugliness, didn't he? (laughs) didn't he now how did he embrace us in the midst of our ugliness he saw our hearts and he saw into our hearts and he saw the pain and suffering we were experiencing and he felt the pain and suffering we were experiencing himself and he's like come here i know man come here that's another interpretation of where jesus told nicodemus unless you're born again born anew born from above you will not see the kingdom of God. Yeah. It's that it, it's it has application to seeing the eternal kingdom, being with Him in the eternal kingdom. But there's more to it than that. There's that life that yeah. is the kingdom. That when you believe on Him, you begin to see and perceive as He perceives. Yeah. That's the kingdom of God too. Yeah, you experience the fruit yeah. of His life. That's right. To your point, that is seeing yeah. the kingdom of God. That's how Paul describes it. In Galatians, actually. Sure. When he says, if you're filled with murder and envying and backbiting and gossiping, you, you shall not see the kingdom of God. He wasn't talking about going to heaven or hell. Mm-hmm. He, was, he goes right on after that to explain what the kingdom of God or heaven was. It was to be filled with peace and love and joy and kindness. And he says, so man, if you're walking after the flesh, 
You're not going to see the kingdom of God. You're not going to experience the peace and the love and joy of God. If you're busy trying to find life through the world or through your own efforts to build a good life in the world, you'll never see God's joy. You'll never see His peace. I think, I think you can enjoy life, and I think the flip side of that is where you said that, you know, in, in relationships you either run away or the opposite of that is that you actually come along and you try and be that person's savior. So you're like, okay, I see all this mess and I see all this chaos and I see all this confusion, but you come from a mindset of like, I'm now gonna, it's now my responsibility and I'm gonna take a burden upon myself that I'm gonna save this person. Right. And I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna fix it. Rather than, rather than <laughs> having the mind that, you know what, I see that this person is hurting and I see that they're suffering and like what you said, coming to God and fellowshipping with Him and letting His life for you, it's different than I'm going to go and fix your problems now. Or tell you how to fix your problems. Tell you to fix your problems. Like Job, Job's friends. Huh? Yeah. Yes, because that's normally what it turns into. Right. We observe the outward behavior yeah. that we decide yeah. is causing the problem. Yeah. And then we come with the answer. And we decide that this is what they need and this is how they're going to get life and this is how it's going to happen rather than letting God do what he does. That's when I raise my arm. Don't raise your arm anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to, uh, I think this will help everybody because it helped me tremendously. Just to, you, you kind of said this in passing to me last week, Greg. That, uh, and then every analogy limps, which means, you know, there's no perfect analogy. But this really helped me. The spirit in you is like an inoculation against sin, which is wisdom. So when that sin comes to you, or that temptation to have life by your own effort, comes to you. You already have the spirit in you that that is that it's like antibody is attacking the virus. You may not know it, you may not sense it, you may not feel like it, you may even have a fever. But the fever is actually proof of the antibodies in you fighting something, a foreign body, right? That really helped me because it means I can't help the spirit in me in that battle. Right. Yeah. And Jesus didn't either. He just laid back in Rejoiced in the fact that he and the Father are one, and in the most extreme circumstances on the cross, he let the Spirit do the do the fighting. That really helps me, because for two reasons. Number one, uh, the temptation is to help ourselves, right? Number two, when you look at your circumstances or even your feelings, and you and you think, "Man, I'm all alone and lost," uh, you're actually not. <laughs> That battle within you is actually evidence of the spirit in you battling. That's exactly right. That's a great analogy. It is a good analogy. Um, the if you think you can fix someone or save someone from their suffering, ask yourself this. And I'm gonna say it as radically as it can be said, so you can see how foolish that sounds. Do you think you can build them a body that can never die? Do you think you can build them a body that can never die? Do you think you can conquer death? Okay, then you can't save them, neither can you fix the problem. But guess what? You do know the only person that can do that. Right? And you can talk to him about that. Right? And you can dwell with them, understanding that and knowing that. Right? And should the time present itself, you could point to that. Right? As the answer. And that's the, the best way of looking at it. And we never look at it like that. We, we never think of it like that. If we understood that everything that ailed the world on every front was death, 
and a body that was dying. We wouldn't think some of the things were real solutions that we try to implement. And neither would we implement some of those stupid things. And neither would we torment ourselves with some of those stupid things. Because what we'd see is, well, none of those things can build a body that can never die. None of those things can conquer death in the flesh. Right? And it would become real obvious to us what the real answer was. I think it's one of the things that torments the church right now, is they don't actually understand what the real enemy is or what the root of the problem is. And so the church comes up with all these solutions that looks more like picking fruit instead of taking an axe to the root of the real problem, right? And so with all the political unrest, with all the uh, COVID unrest, with all the unrest everywhere, the church never comes with the real solution because it doesn't see that the problem underneath all those things that is actually giving birth to all those things is death, a body of death. And so then the church wants to connect themselves to fighting darkness, implementing the systems of darkness. You can't. And we talked about that a few weeks ago in the Bible study, where we try to fight what we see as darkness, but then the thing we try to fight it with is just another system of darkness. Right? And none of that will actually work. Because the system of darkness isn't the actual problem. Death is the problem. And so if you're busy trying to fight the system of darkness that isn't the root of the problem, instead of fighting the root of the problem, your efforts are also full of darkness. You know. And ineffective and won't work. And so the answer is to take an axe to the root, which is to see death is the father of every bit of corruption in the earth. And if death is what has fathered it, the only thing that can solve the problem is a life that can be fathered that can kill death. Right? And now you start seeing clearly what the answer is. And you stop thinking that the world has solutions for you. This, this messes the church up. The world and its systems do not have solutions for you. The world changing or going this way or that way doesn't have the solution that you need. It can't give you anything. Do you know why? Because it can't conquer death. It can't build you a body that can't die. Should you feel torment over something that's going on in the world? The only reason you would feel torment is because you think it's harming your life. And so what would be the solution for you in that place? Not for the thing to change, for you to realize God has given you a life that can't be harmed by whatever darkness is going on in the world. That's the solution. Right? And that, listen, God will persuade you of that. And a beautiful thing will happen in you is that every time you encounter darkness in the world you'll find that God has brought something forth in you where your heart connects to Him and the solution that He gave you when He conquered death in the flesh. And your heart will no longer connect to the systems in the world or all the things in the world. And you'll no longer be fighting the world through the world systems, but you'll be fighting the world, or rather, you'll see that God has warred against the death that's in the world by giving you a life that can't die. And you'll connect with God about the life that can't die, that he's baptized you in. And then you'll start looking at the hell that's going on in the world, and you'll think, I have a life that can't be overcome by the world. In fact, I see the life I have even stood out of the grave and overcame the world. Hallelujah. And then that's the solution that you need. Whatever you think is going wrong in the world, the solution isn't for it to change. I'm so sorry. Because even should it all change, you're still dying. And even should it all change, you still need a body that can't die. And the only thing that can give you that is God. That's the only solution for you. And the thing that breaks my heart about the church is we still don't see that. And we're still busy trying to change everything in the world systems. 
Let's make the world systems right so that then we can have, that will be the solution if we could just get into the world systems and make it right. The hell that is the solution because you can make all the world systems right and that can't remove death. And Everyone's still dying. And Jesus even was tempted by the serpent with that very idea. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. You think Jesus wouldn't have implemented a system in the earth that would have been perfect? But Jesus said, uh, I'm sorry, even should you give me all the kingdoms of the earth, and even should I implement my system outwardly in the earth, that still leaves death in the earth. And so that's no solution at all. The only solution is for death to be removed from the earth. Sorry. No, 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 I was going to say, it's like what was Jesus' mind consumed with when he was here on earth? Because when you talk about that, people say, well, do you not have any compassion for what is going on in this world? Do you not understand all these different things that are in place? And I'm like, well, Jesus was fully aware and fully knew what was going on in his heart. And he was full of compassion and love. But his driving motivation was that he would conquer death. Yeah. And that's what he was consumed with. And that's why he came. And that's what he came to set us free from. And, but it's like what Greg said, it's, it's the church's miss that. I was they're, saying, thinking, they're thinking, if I have all these systems in place and everything is as it ought to be, then I'm going to have love, then I'm going to have peace, then I'm going to have joy and we'll have utopia on earth. Yeah. But you're still going to die. Have you ever thought about the fact that if we didn't go through the negative things that we, didn't, that we went through, we wouldn't have that comparison to know how good that love was? You know? The more we go through negative, the more we know how good love is. Like, let's say a rich kid has gone through no pain and no want their whole lives, you know, and then all of a sudden they stub their toe and then they all of a sudden no pain, you know, and they didn't know that, you know, their whole lives. And then they realized that, oh, well, you know, maybe I have, it, have had it good this whole time. Without that comparison of going through negative, you don't know how good that love is. There's definitely, there's definitely truth. That I'm sorry, go ahead. That I was just going to say that everyone experiences suffering to some degree in this earth. And, we, and death is in the world. So we see death even when it's manifested in someone else. But it's true that People who struggle and experience suffering uh, and, and see that that suffering actually exists in the world can sometimes maybe see clearer the, 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 the differentiation between the death and the life. But everyone experiences it, so they're all necessarily open to it. But I was thinking... Hold on, hold on, hold on. We're not yeah. just going to move on from that, that comment. Yeah. Um, because we want to fill it out because it, it is true that when we encounter suffering God can work with that and still reveal himself what we want to weigh is is suffering the father of love and we can't allow that truth that, that was just said to now equal suffering as the father of love right jesus didn't come to know the father's love when he suffered he knew the father's love to begin with now there's people like me that are stiff-necked and stubborn we put ourselves through yes. our suffering i i i didn't come to 
the knowledge of the love, I put myself through a living hell. Exactly. Now, God loved me enough exactly. to be with me in the midst of the living hell exactly. to minister love to me, right? But I did that to myself, and it wasn't a requirement in order to know the love. It might have been a requirement for my hard heart. And so what we under, want to understand is the differentiation between me standing up and giving a testimony of what my hard heart had to go through right. to know the love of God and, and turning my personal experience into an eternal truth. Like right? Nick said the way some people that teach comparison now that how much God loves you. I see. I've come to know the love of God yeah. because of, I don't want to even say because of, I've come to know the love of God because of God. Right? <laughs> and because I was so hard-hearted, what I did was in the place of suffering, I cried out to God. But that's not to say that I had to suffer in order to know God. For me, that's what I did. But Jesus knew the love of God without suffering. He, he, he knew the love of God before he went to the cross, and that sustained him on the cross. He didn't go to the cross and then get a revelation of the love of God. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, he, he good did, good comment. Make, he didn't make a comparison and say, oh, this is better than that. It's like uh, my son Nick said years ago. He said, you know, it's the way some people teach the gospel and God supposedly uh, banding, you know, uh, turning his back on, or taking his wrath out on Jesus on the cross. It's like a man had two sons, and he took one son, and he said, uh, he broke his arm, and he said to his other son, watch, I'm going to demonstrate my love to him by healing him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how stupid that thought is. Right. And so, Greg, you use your terms, I use different terms. God doesn't bring about pain to then deliver you from the pain to demonstrate his love for you. And I know right. you're not saying that. Right. You're just saying that when you experience the bad, boy, you sure makes you appreciate the good. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. And the reason we're filling out this conversation, because you're not here. Uh, All the time. Ever, you, I don't think you've been here before. We have this recording, and it's gonna, it goes out internationally. And so we don't just think about what we know you said. We're thinking about what anybody might think about what's said here. And so we make a habit of filling out the whole conversation. Annette, did you? It sounded uh, like you wanted to say basically something. Basically, going to say what you know. No matter how much a person might have in this life, in this world, they've got it made, they've got all the money, they're not suffering, everything goes well for them. Right. They still don't have eternal life. Right. I mean, there's going to come a point where they're going to die. Exactly. You they're going to see the weakness. They've never and they're still known sub the, the still love of God. Yeah. Still subject to fear. There is still, they're right. still subject to fear. So yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because a lot of people do say that, well, you don't, you can't really know God unless you've been loved, unless you, no. I know that's not what you were saying. No. But, you know, it is what I have heard. It's better past. to have... Almost a, saying, like, God yeah. will put you through that in order for you, and that's so not true. Because yeah. like you said, Jesus never knew. It's, it's, it's also, knew you know, it's, it's, it's something that, that everyone has to have, that comparison in order to know that love, you know, that that deep, unconditional love. But let me know? ask a question, question to that. Is I, No one won't have what you're saying is that can you know God through suffering and fellowship with God and experience God? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But did Jesus grow in his revelation of the Father's love for him when he became a man and he suffered, mm -hmm. or did he know it from the beginning? Does that make sense? Right. I mean, you'll, you'll always know it from the beginning. So my point is, is I think a lot of but, people think that in order for but you at the to same know time, God, not everybody is taught that, you know. No, 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 but a lot of right. people think that, like Thomas said, that right. in order to know God's love and experience God's love, mm -hmm. that you have to go through 
suffering in order to have that revelation. Right. And the question as well is, is what, you know, why do we struggle so much with death and why do we and struggle so much right. with pain and all those things? Is because right. we were created, you know, we're an eternal being. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the tug of war. Right. The, well, I mean, if it says, literally, if you think of that God is love. So what is love? Love is the ultimate positive energy. And so God is an ultimate positive energy of the world. So, I mean, you're, you're sitting here of all this negative energy bombarding you and bombarding you your whole life, you know? Right. But until you realize that that love has been there all that time to, to give you that driving force to keep living, you know, that hopefully one day that you might get that love, you know, even though you've had it all along, you know, like, I mean, some people just don't realize until they go through all that negativity. Absolutely. Right. Some people don't realize it. The point is that's not the power to people realizing it. Right. Is the negativity. Like, you don't have to see the bad in order to know the good. Right? God didn't need to see the bad to know he was good. He knew what was in him was good before he made everything. And out of knowing what was in him and knowing that it was good, there was no darkness when there was just God. So he didn't need to see the darkness to know that what was in him was good. He okay. saw what was in him was good, and then he created knowing what was in him was good. And when you, when you think about the love of God, you want to define the love of God inside of the parameters that Jesus defined it in, because he's God. And so everybody wants to talk for God, but God came and talked for himself, right? right? In the person of Jesus. And what he kind of come and did is, and we can take it personally, I took it personally for a while. He come and made all our surmisings about God foolishness, right? Because he's God. Like we sat around, it's like we're all sitting around talking about you, it's all right? Process. It's like we're sitting around talking about you and you're not here and we're all deciding who you are, what you think, why you think it, what you believe, and then you walk in the door and sit down and explain yourself to us. Right. That's how it was with God. We're all sitting around deciding what God is, what he thinks, what all these things are about him, and then he showed up himself and told us. And so Jesus come and defined the love of God within a very specific parameter with himself. He said the love of God is contained in God coming and conquering death. And he said, the thing that's warring against you is death. And you see that God loves you in that he came and conquered death when he raised Jesus from the dead and glorified immortal flesh that could never die again. And so the love of God for you is seen that when you're suffering at the hands of the death in the world or the corruption or the lack or the decay, God cries because it bothers him that you're hurting. And it bothered him so much that you're hurting that he waged a war against death when he consumed death inside of the flesh of Jesus, when he raised Jesus from the dead in a body that could never die again. And when you see that he warred against what was warring against you, you're knowing his love. And that's why Jesus felt loved on the cross. The thing that was warring against him was death. The cross defines what is causing us pain. What is it that came upon Jesus at the cross? Death. 
And Jesus felt loved on the cross, even in the midst of death coming against him. Why did he feel loved on the cross? He says in the Psalms, because God will not suffer me to see corruption. His face is not hid from me, but he will raise me from the dead, never to be able to die again. That's what made him feel loved. Because he conquered his fear. The fear comes from death. Right. 